for a little bit on the Word of God. Uh, if all hearts are free, that is, assuming that nobody has anything they feel impressed to do at this time, uh, not a word of praise or testimony, not a song that they feel the need to be sung. Uh, and we will say this, if you're here today and you're lost and you feel like you need to seek the Lord for the salvation of your soul, we've got a convenient place to come and pray. And you've got people that will stay and pray with you as long as you feel the need to pray. And because that that is a personal relationship between you and God that you are trying to get established at that moment. And we tried to preach a little bit on that last week, and we're going to kind of look at it from, um, try to expound a little further this week. And we're going to take for our topic this morning, the almost Christian. The almost Christian. And we're going to use for our uh, scripture reading this morning, Acts chapter 26. So Acts chapter 26, uh, and and... Uh, and and so uh, we're going to start here in the first verse, and then I'm going to drop down uh, because I don't want uh, I don't want to, everybody's eyes to glaze over. Uh, so I'm not going to read all 28 verses. But then Agrippa uh, said unto Paul, and now we need to make an, a mention about which Agrippa we're talking about here. Uh, and this is Agrippa the uh, second. This is the son of Agrippa, King Agrippa that you read about in Acts chapter 12. So then Agrippa said to Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. And then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently, my manner of life from my youth, which was at the, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope and the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought an incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought within my, with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, and the and the brightness of the uh, above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue. Saul, Saul, why thou, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And so I'm going to stop right there and uh, and drop down a little bit. And so Paul chooses here at this moment before Agrippa to relate unto him his salvation experience there on the Damascus Road. 
And then he drops down a little bit further. And he continues his, his discourse from there. And you're going to find a, a statement that's made down here uh, in, the, uh, in the 27th to the 28th verse. But first, he's going to be accused of being mad by Festus. And Festus said with a loud voice in the 24th, uh, 24th verse, uh, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. Uh, but he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom, I, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of those those of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And then King Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And that's our thought for this morning. The almost Christian. That's that's what uh, that's what Agrippa was here. He was the almost Christian. He says almost. Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And what's interesting here uh, about these verses of Scripture is uh, if we look at uh, what was what what had taken place previous to this, uh, you had this same sort of interaction going on between Paul. Uh, only this time it was with Felix. Uh, and so here, uh, when he was uh, reasoning with Felix, and Felix had brought his wife Drusilla with him, and she was a Jewess, and so she was familiar with what Paul was talking about, or she should have been. Uh, and and by by virtue of that, Felix knew about what Paul was talking about, so he had this knowledge of what he was talking about. And in the 25th verse, it says, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, that Felix trembled. Now we see Felix trembling here, uh, and we go back over into the 26th chapter down here, and we don't see Agrippa doing that, uh, because uh, there's got to be uh, a mingling there, doesn't it? There has to be something else acting upon the individual that's being spoken to if they're truly going to come to know God in the free pardon and forgiveness of sin. If they're going to be able to stand and say that they're a Christian and really mean it. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, you can stand and say you're a Christian uh, and the world won't take notice of it, um, but you can, uh, but to actually be able to say that I know that I am a Christian, that's what Paul's getting about here. Paul's not talking about something that is done uh, that he cannot relate to somebody. Uh, and notice here, uh, when we read about that conversion of Paul there on the Damascus Road, and we go back up here, uh, and he has this bright light that shines around him. Uh, and the Lord, uh, he asks, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am the Lord Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And Jesus gives him a command, doesn't he, right at that moment. But what happened before that? Paul, became he, he got into the presence of the Lord, and then he was humble before the Lord, and then having re received the grace of God, God, he tells him, Rise. In the 16th verse, he says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. And that's why he writes to the church of Galatia, and he says, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, meaning I didn't go down to the apostles in Jerusalem and be taught the doctrine by the apostles in Jerusalem, but I was in the deserts of Arabia. And for three years I was taught by Jesus Christ. 
And you say, well, why would it take Jesus three years to teach Paul the doctrine that he would proclaim in word and in and with the pen? Because all of that doctrine that he knew beforehand, that he laid out here to King Agrippa, all of that had to be expunged from his mindset and the way that he approached religion had to be changed and God was the one who had to change it. We read about what he did beforehand and, and you know, it's always, a notice, no, it's always noticeable about the death of Stephen uh, that it, the Bible tells us that Paul was consenting unto the death of Stephen. But Paul was not just merely consenting unto the death of Stephen, but many more, he relates here. You see, he zealously persecuted the church of God, but Jesus said, I'm going to use that zealotry that you have against me and I'm going to flip it on its head and I'm going, and you're going to use it for me. But before you can do that, you have to actually know me. You see, he had a working knowledge of Christ, didn't he? Paul knew who he was physically. He knew he was a man that lived and a man who was deemed a blasphemer by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and that he was pers- and that he was uh, that he was crucified at Calvary hanging between two thieves. He had that knowledge of him before any of that happened, didn't he? Before I ever got saved, I had a working knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. I knew that he was the son of God. And you say, well, how did you know that? Well, because people said that he was the son of God. (laughs) And it was people that I was raised with and around, and I believed them, and I had no reason to not believe that anything to the contrary. And so I believed that, uh, and, and I agreed with all of that, but I didn't know it. That's the difference. Paul says, Agrippa, before we talk about any of these offenses that I'm charged with, any of these accusations, let's go back to the beginning. And let's tell you why I'm charged with these things. If if the Lord hadn't changed me there on my face on the Damascus Road, then I wouldn't be charged with any of these things. And you can tell Paul was very persuasive in his speech, wasn't he? Because he says, Paul, Agrippa says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But he's not even as close as Felix was. Because Felix, he heard the things that Paul had proclaimed unto he and Drusilla. And Felix trembled, didn't he? Because of why? Because the Bible teaches us very plainly that when we have our sins exposed to God, that if we, uh, that, and, and God presents himself before us, uh, and manifests his presence to us, and you may say, well, you can't see him. Well, you can't see the wind either, can you? That's what the Bible tells us. 
John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus used the wind as an allegory for the Holy Spirit working on an individual when he said, uh, or as an example, he said, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot, canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I mean, when the Spirit of God moves among God's people, and you're among those people, and they, uh, and you don't know God, I'm going to tell you right now, if you have any kind of realization of yourself and any kind of honesty with yourself and you can allow your conscience to bear weight on yourself, uh, the Holy Spirit of God can use that and it can let you know I know the sins that you've committed the same as you know the sins that you've committed. I know what you're I know what your end result is, and you know what your end result is going to be. And if that doesn't make somebody humble themselves before God, I don't know what would. But today, in the but today in today's day and age, we want to take that that just that initial knowledge and say that's enough. That's enough to make the determination of whether or not I am or am not a Christian. If Paul had just said, uh, I believe, uh, and that was all it was, uh, then I don't think Paul would have had what he professed to have. And you say, well, how can you make such a statement? And I've used this before, but one needs to only go into Acts chapter 9 and read about, I believe it's chapter 9, don't quote me on that, but I believe it's Acts chapter 9 and read about the story of Simon Magus who gave a profession of faith and was baptized by Philip the deacon there in Samaria, but nevertheless proved himself to not have what he professed to have. When he looked at Peter... And James and John and said, hey, the gift, the, the ability to bestow the holy gift, can, how much will it cost me to be able to do that? Peter said, I perceive that thou art still in the gall of bitterness. And so what is the almost Christian? It's somebody who has a working knowledge and they have, they have this idea of what Christ is, but they don't know Christ in the free pardon forgiveness of sin. The blood hasn't been applied. And what does the blood do? It washes you free from all sin. And being washed free from all sin, what does the Bible teach us that that does? That once that blood of Christ is applied by the Holy Spirit of God, that the, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And that's what that means. And so we get into this here for just a little bit. And see, it's not just, it's not just Paul working on one side, but the Spirit of God has to be working in concert, doesn't it? Because it's the Spirit of God which actually does the work. You can be sitting here this morning. You may hear the words coming out of my mouth. God may be taking those words and using those words once they filter through your ears and through your brain and you allow them to sink down, down into your heart, down into your gut where the heart of man resides uh, and that may cause you uh, and I'm going to relate to you my experience, uh, that may cause you to be, have a very sick feeling it may cause you to feel very uh, I'm going to use this phrase, it may cause you to feel like you've got butterflies in your stomach
It may make you nervous. It may make you not be able to stand up. It may make you do all of these things. But no, it's not just the speech of Paul alone which can do it. And I'm going to use John chapter 16 as an example for that because Jesus teaching here, John chapter 16 beginning in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. He says, For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And that's that same same spirit that God that he's talking about when he's talking to Nicodemus in the third chapter uh, where he says the, the wind bloweth where it listeth and thou canst not tell uh, the sound there or thou canst hear the sound of it uh, but canst tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth see the spirit of God he has free agency does he and what he's going to do and you may be here today and you don't know the Lord in the free part of forgiveness of sin uh, but I'm going to tell you right now if you'll soften your position to the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to work on you. See, God doesn't call me to save anybody. He never, when, he, when he said, hey, I want you to go and preach, he didn't say, I bestow upon you the ability to forgive men of their sins. He knew that I was not fit to do that because I had my own problems. Just the same way as the priest did in the Old Testament. You know, they always had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could enter in to the most holy place. There's only one who ever lived who didn't have to do that, and that's Christ. And so we get back up here. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. And so you see, Felix stood reproved, didn't he? Not by Paul, but by the Holy Spirit of God. And he trembled. And he said, when I have a more convenient season, I'll send for you. And you may be here today and you may think, well, when I, when I feel ready, I'll do it. I want to tell you right now, that may be the only chance you ever get because we're not promised another breath out of our body. The Bible teaches us that now is the time. Today is the day. Now is the appointed time. If you want to be, if you want to know the Lord and you want to know Him in the free pardon forgiveness of sin, now is the time. But you've got to do it with acknowledgement, right? I'm not worthy of this, but God will give me a gift even though I'm unworthy. Because he sent one who was. But he'll reprove the world of sin. And what's that mean? That means he'll convict the world of sin. Christianity today largely leaves that out. Oh, just, just listen to me and be persuaded and join us and do this and do all these works and be baptized. And hey, you're a Christian. You're not saved by works of righteousness. And though you present yourself for a baptism, that's a work of righteousness. 
You're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Nobody will stand before God in heaven and say, oh, I've got this to brag about. Even if they are granted ten crowns for the life that they lived, every crown they're granted as a reward they will throw every one of those down at the one who's truly worthy of the crown, and that's Christ Jesus. Heavy is the head that wears the crown? I agree. That's why nobody in heaven will wear it. They'll throw it down at the feet of the Lord, and they'll say, you are worthy, Lord, because of what you did for me. For Paul, it was on the Damascus Road. For me, it was in an apartment over on O'Shea Street here in Bowling Green. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The righteousness that gets us into heaven isn't the, the accumulation of the good works that we do in this world. All of the works that we do in this world will be placed in the scales and the weight of our sin will always over, will always be greater than them. The only thing that can be placed in the scales that's greater than your sin is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. When that's accredited and when that's placed in the scale, there's not a sin in the world that can keep you out of heaven because where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judge and I have many things to say unto you but you cannot bear them now. How be it when the spirit of, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself. And this is really important, isn't it? He shall not speak of himself. Well, the almost Christian, that's how you can, that's how you catch them, isn't it? Because the almost Christian will say, look at what I've done. Look what I've done. Look at this great thing that I've done. You know, you go through the old, you go through the Bible and every almost Christian you can find in the Bible, they're pointing to, look at what I did. Go and read about Cain and Abel. And when Cain's offering was rejected by the Lord, why was it that Cain got so angry? Because here he is, he brings, and I know there's a lot of people that believe that Cain just brought the leftovers and he brought the worst of what he had. I'll tell you right now, I've never known of anybody who ever brought the worst that they had when they were laying it before the judge? Have you ever heard of anybody who went to the 4-H convention to have their watermelon weighed or whatever? Did they ever go to the fields and say, well, here, I got this puny one that's here in the fields. I want to take that one and have it judged. Or do they look at the very best one they have in the field and they pick it and they take that and they present it before the judge and they feel slighted if theirs doesn't win, doesn't it? Well, I tell you what, the best thing that you have that is made by the works of your hands, you bring it before the Lord, and it is nothing. Cain got so mad. Because Abel's sacrifice 
was received and accepted. And I say blessed. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Abel's sacrifice wasn't the byproduct of his own hands. Abel's sacrifice was really nothing that he had any part of in its growing, was it? He couldn't tend the field. He couldn't fertilize it. He couldn't do any of those things. Was something that was born into the world. And it was something that within it, it contained life, the life's blood, wouldn't it? You see, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That's why it was necessary that Christ would come into the world and that He would die. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. If Christ never was sacrificed, uh, then every person in the world today is still uh, in sin with no hope of a remedy. But we know that that's not the truth. Amen and hallelujah. We've got a way, don't we, of escape. We've got, we've got, we've got a high priest sitting in heaven today who doesn't just know and understand and try with his mind to understand what we're going through. He went through it. We have a sympathetic high priest, don't we, in heaven today who can't be touched with the infirm, or who can be touched or can't be touched with the infirmity of our feelings. He knows exactly what you're going through. If you're here today and you're lost, he understands that. He ran into it a lot while he was in the world. And whenever they humbled themselves before him and they made their petition known to him, honestly, you know, he never said no. The ones who went away and they didn't get it, they were the almost Christians. And I'm going to use this as my last example for the almost Christian. And that's the rich, he's, re, he's recounted in the Bible as the rich young ruler. Uh, and he goes to the Lord, he says, Lord, all, I've, I've done all of these things. I've kept the law. As he, because he goes and he says, Lord, what is it that I must do that I may inherit eternal life? And the Lord looks at him and says, well, keep the law. Well, actually, I'm just going to flip over there. I'm going to flip over there real quick. I don't want to get it wrong. That's why I want to flip over there. He says, good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and says, Why callest thou me good? None none is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. He's he's referring back to the Mosaic law here, isn't he? And Paul told us that the law is good if it be kept spiritually. But they didn't keep it spiritually, did they? They kept it carnally. And he says to him, he says, all of these I have kept from my youth up. You see, he's he's talking with God face to face. And God's telling him what he has to do. And he's so deluded in himself that he says, I've done all of these things. What do I lack? You know what you lack? You only have a carnal knowledge of it and not a spiritual knowledge of God.
And Jesus is going to prove that he hasn't done those things that he's professed that he's done with one statement. Okay, yet thou lackest one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And what he proved there is that he loved his wealth and riches more than anything else in the world. God doesn't want you to just be a mindless, obedient robot. He wants your heart. (laughs) He wants your soul. There's a reason why when you get saved, there's an operation that takes place. There is a construction that takes place. I like to always revert to it as a construction. But Ezekiel, he referred to it as the operation of the heart where the old stony heart is cut out and he gives a heart of flesh whereby they can feel. And upon that heart of flesh is written the commandments of God. See, we don't worship it written on tables of stone anymore, but on tables of flesh, upon the heart. It's with the heart that man believeth. And so we look here. We're going to close here in just a moment. You see, he was almost a Christian, wasn't he? He was right there. He said, all you've got to do is one thing. He said, I can't do it. He went away sorrowful, didn't he? Felix, he said, Felix reasoned with Paul, and he trembled as he was reasoning with Paul, and he said, when I have a more convenient season, I'll send for you, Paul. I don't. The Bible doesn't tell us if that season ever came. Agrippa standing there reasoning with Paul, he says, almost... Thou persuadest me. Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades is what I always tell my kids. And so almost won't cut it. Well, you can't almost get to heaven. Almost get to heaven means to hit hell wide open. Close with this, close with this, uh, this verse right here. Or these series, uh, these few verses here. A couple more examples and then I'm going to going to wrap it up. There's a lot of people uh, doctrinally that like to proclaim that this, when you come into this interaction with the Spirit of God, that it's irresistible. That there's nothing that you can do that you can't turn away from it. Well, I believe Felix turned away from it. I believe Agrippa. I don't even think the Spirit was really dealing with Agrippa here. I think he was reasoning with Paul, and Agrippa so convoluted of himself because you have to understand who his daddy was. And if you go over into the 12th chapter of the book of the Acts, you'll read about his daddy, and his daddy was uh, uh, the one who killed James, uh, and he also had imprisoned Peter, uh, and he was incensed when the Lord... Uh, made a way for Peter to escape the prison there, and he had the prison guards killed. And so his daddy was not a very nice guy. That was the influence he was raised around. But he's still better than his dad because he looked at Paul, and he said, Paul hasn't done anything worthy of death, and he's not even done anything worthy of being in bonds. He doesn't even deserve to be in prison. Why is he here? I would release him. But Paul made his request to Caesar. We read about in the Old Testament about Jericho when the Lord had sent the children of Israel and delivered them out of Egypt and they had finally 
gone through those 40 years of trial there in the wilderness. And they were, they finally had crossed over Jordan. And here they are. They find themselves at their first confrontation, which, well, the first major confrontation, first battle, let's say. Um, there've been uh, some smaller ones before this, but here they come to Jericho, this great walled fence city. Uh, and we see this, uh, this uh, current, uh, and God's commandment to them to fight this battle is, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around this city one time a day. Blow the trumpets and shout on the seventh day after you march around it seven times. When they did that, the walls of that city collapsed. And the gates, which were held up by the walls of that city, collapsed. And so the, the, there is a, a knowledge here to say that when, uh, when, whenever that happens, uh, you can't resist it. But there's one thing about an individual, and this is what I want you to understand today. You've got to want to be saved if you want to be saved because God will not go against your own will. But you're not saved by the will of man. You're saved and kept by the power of God. You see, that, that analogy there at Jericho is much more attributable to the onslaught that happened when Jesus sent his soldiers, whose weapons were not carnal but spiritual, to the pulling down of strongholds into the realm of Japheth. And the religions of Japheth were totally destroyed. And so we look at this and we go on and we see this other example here. Perfect example. We'll call him the anti-rich ruler or young rich ruler, all right? He was a king. And he was a king over Judah. And he was a very wicked king over Judah. But we read about his escapades here in the second chapter or in the second Chronicles, in the 33rd chapter, it says, And the Lord spake unto Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. See, here's the thing. You have to listen to the Lord. Whether you're saved or whether you're lost, you have to listen to the Lord. If you're lost, you've got to listen to the Lord and be drawn to the Lord, because unless you be drawn to the Son, you do not have access through the Father through any other means. The Bible teaches us if you're going to crawl up into heaven by some other method, you'll be accounted as a thief and a robber, and you will be dealt with as such. We read about Manasseh here. And Manasseh and the people, they wouldn't listen to the word of the Lord. And so here today, I pray that you're, you're giving ear and attention to what God is saying. He says, Wherefore the Lord brought unto uh, upon them uh, the captains of the hosts of the king of Assyria. And you know what? Here's the thing about the Assyrians. There may not have ever existed in the history of humanity a more bloodthirsty people than the Assyrians. When they took over an area, they completely and utterly destroyed it. And so here, you see God's providence in this. He's, he's not totally destroyed, but here we see that Manasseh is carried away. He says, Wherefore the Lord have brought upon them the captains of the hosts of the king of Assyria. Israel would be the northern kingdom, uh, and bound him by fetters and, and, and carried him to Babylon. Uh, and when he was in affliction... He besought the Lord. Isn't this funny? Here you have this king who's taken captive. Let's use a modern day term for it. He's a POW, isn't he? He's a prisoner of war. And he's brought to Babylon and he's put in prison. 
and he's used to only the fine things in life, and he has all of that taken away from him. And he's not only just against the Lord, he's an open idolater, isn't he? He carves and crafts an idol, and where does he place it but none other place than in the temple itself? You see, you've got to know, there's got to be a change, doesn't there? The almost Christian, they may be able to present this change for a little while, but eventually you're going to see the real. You see what Manasseh was before he was saved. And I'm going to say saved. I'm not going to say converted because he didn't do any works There was nothing he could do. He's sitting in a prison the same way that the thief hung on a cross. There was nothing that he could do but to make his appeal to God. There's nobody else in Babylon going to hear his cry. There's nobody else in Jerusalem that's going to bestow mercy on the thief on the cross. He didn't get it because he was baptized, because... Neither of these guys were baptized. They were saved through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so we read here, and he says that, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him. Manasseh was not a good guy. But when he let go of all of that, And what's he seeking? He knows that the reason he's there is because he's offended God. That's what you need to understand. That's what doesn't get preached today. The sins that you commit offend God. And God will call you to account of that one day. Pray it's on this side of eternity and not the next. Manasseh finally came to this realization and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord heard him. And he heard his supplication. The same way that, the same way that David says, I Lord the love because he hath heard my prayer and he hath heard my supplication. And he heard his supplication and he brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, he had a knowledge of God, didn't he? He was taught, but he didn't know him. You have to know him if you're going to be saved. To be saved is to know him. And that's our message today. I hope you got a blessing out of it. If you're here today and you're lost, I honestly hope you got convicted by it. And that's not to be mean, but if you're ever going to be saved, you've got to first know that you're convicted. And so that's our message today. Brother Brother Williams, if you've got a song, or if there's a, anybody has a word on their heart, we'll, we'll turn the service over to that now.